get the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, episode 35. It's our one-year anniversary, and we're glad you're here to celebrate it with us. On this episode, we'll hear from noted ag economist David Widmar to discuss the state of the farm economy as we enter 2020. We'll also hear from U.S. Dairy Export Council president and CEO and former U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, and we'll take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop in Nashville for music from Cagney Frizzell, the nephew of iconic country music entertainers Lefty and David Frizzell. You won't want to miss a moment of it. Let's go! Before we get started this week, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who stuck with us throughout this first year of Fast Line Fast Track and welcome those who are just discovering it. We truly appreciate everyone who's listened, subscribed, followed us on social media, and shared the show link with their friends. We can't grow this without you, and we're humbled that you make us a part of your week. We'll strive to get a little bit better each time out and provide you with meaningful ag content that will help you save money, make money, save time, and understand hot-button industry issues. We'll also continue to bring you the best in true country music supported by our friends at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, it's my honor to welcome back to the program David Widmar, who is an ag economist and co-founder of Agricultural Economic Insights. Uh, they do amazing work, and you can check them out at AEI.ag. And David, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Great to be back. Thanks for having me this week. Well, I tell you what, uh, we uh, we had you on at the beginning of the show here, the, this show actually being the uh, one-year anniversary show here of Fast Line Fast Track. Uh, we had you on, I guess, in the second or third episode uh, uh, last year and then we had you on at the midpoint and uh, and now at the uh, the, the one year mark and uh, we're seeing some common refrains throughout these uh, when we talked in in June uh, we talked about some of the the, the movement that hadn't happened uh, in the first half of the year and we said it'll be interesting to see what, what the rest of the year looks like we've seen a slight bit of movement uh, when we talk about USMCA and maybe just maybe uh, some movement on China, um, but but from where you stand, w- what will 2019 be remembered for by you? You know, I think there's two big stories. I'm going to group a bunch of things together here, but the first one was um, demand and it's lackluster, and that goes with the trade war. You know, we started 2019 off with a, a part of that 90-day truce where China and the U.S. were going to get together and they're going to negotiate this thing out quickly. And that faded really quickly as the planting season came on. And by the time we got to May, we were putting more tariffs in place. And now the trade war is back at sort of this uh, any day now we're going to sign another agreement or phase one is what we're calling it. There's a lot of hope here, but we've been here before. The other part of the adverse demand story is around African swine fever. And, you know, just we kind of saw the tip of the iceberg, I think. African swine fever in 2020 is going to reveal um, just how deep the problems are in China and how wide the problems go uh, around the world. Uh, again, on the production side, on the supply side of this thing, of course, uh, no surprise, we had 20 million acres of the prevent plant. We had a late planted crop. We had below trend corn and soybean yields the first time in five years. 
And so all of this sort of came together in 2020 and left producers uh, playing sort of this uh, management whack-a-mole of every time a problem came up and they thought they got their head around it, another problem would creep in. This is a question that nobody wants to ask or think about, but uh, what, what position do we find ourselves in if, uh, if we see a similar uh, setup for 2020? So when we think about, with respect to the trade war, I think one of the things that we had in 2019 as well as 2018 is MFP payments. And one of the questions uh, we're thinking about is, will there be another MFP program? I think the work they did in 2019 lays the foundation for uh, an, an easy plan for the USDA to roll into a 2020 program. With the MFP, we expect it to be very similar to the 2019 program. When we think about the supply side of the story uh, and the production side, you know, we saw projected ending stocks from May to now on soybeans decrease by 50%. And so we saw a big production shock, but we didn't see a whole lot of a price rally. And the reason was is because our our ending stocks were really burdensome going into it. The starting point matters, and in 2019, we had a pretty lousy starting point. Now, 2019's production hiccups uh, put us back closer to long-run average um, ending stocks. And so if we have another hiccup on the production side, in 2020, we might see more um, price action. We might see a lot more uh, price activity, uh, maybe a stronger rally, uh, because that starting point, we're a little bit tighter today than we were a year ago. And that could set us up for uh, some stories if production gets uh, we, we, the scare or the reality of a short crop in 2020. Now, I know we spent a lot of time around uh, U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue in the uh, fourth quarter of the year, and he was pressed quite a bit on uh, the uh, MFP uh, process, and, and that was about the, the time that the second round of payments uh, went out and people started asking him, hey, will there be a third round? And the common refrain you kept hearing from him was, uh, well, farmers really want trade, not aid, and, and we don't want everybody to become dependent on these. Uh, do you believe that? There's still more that they're willing to do uh, from a USDA standpoint and, and from a federal standpoint, or is this a, a matter where uh, uh, at some point uh, farmers are going to have to start looking at, at alternatives? I think uh, one uh, thing to look at is what happens with the phase one trade deal um, and then sort of what gets signed or what gets promised, and then how does that bear out? Uh, as 2020 unfolds with the reality. So if there's a pledge to get to $40 billion in ag purchases, do, do we actually get there? Um, there's, in my opinion, you know, we're going to go to, um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong between now and a year from, uh, you know, mm-hmm. December 2020. A lot can go wrong there. Uh, and so that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing is any type of policy has pros and cons, and the con uh with MFP is that we fundamentally still have a burdensome ending stock situation. And so even if the trade deal was inked yesterday and China is going to start buying, there's a lag there. And we still have to work through the burdensome supplies that accumulated during the 18 months of the trade war that we've already had. We've had two soybean harvests and uh, sort of goes stuck in the bin. And building on top of that, soybeans problems have snowballed into the rest of the farm economy. So we now we have burdensome supplies for wheat and corn and other crops. And so that one of the downfalls of MFP is that it helps, well, I guess the upside is it helps income. 
The downside is we still have burdensome ending stocks. And how do we work through those? That's going to take some time, and producers are going to have to think about that with respect of um, with respect to their plans. So right now, as they're making their budgets and plans, they can't put a 2020 MFP program on the books. But a couple surveys um, show that a majority of producers are expecting uh, an MFP payment this year. Uh, we like to ask the question, what's the probability of an MFP payment getting made in 2020? Um, you know, you got to start thinking about that and how that fits into your expectations. So we're telling producers that they can hope for one or anticipate one, but don't budget on it, don't plan on it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I would uh, challenge and encourage everybody listening to this to do is to go back to to your blog and check out the recap of the decade uh, that you guys uh, put, put together so well here. And the summary of that that uh, that, that I want to read through here, uh, it, it really uh, uh, brings everything home here and it, it really gets you thinking here. Uh, I'm just going to read it real quick. The, the dichotomy of the past decade is quite stark. The first several years, centered around production shortcomings and the difficulty of keeping up with strong demand. It was common to hear pondering about feeding 9 billion people by 2050. Most recently, though, however, uh, the challenges have been nearly opposite. Large yields, burdensome ending stocks, weak commodity prices, and farm incomes, and concerns about too little demand for ag products from trade, diseases, and disruption. I guess my question to you would be, how did we get there over the course of a decade where where that pension swung so far in one direction and uh, what's it going to take for it to swing back the other direction you know that's great um it's sort of hard it's a great post to read through because it's kind of hard to remember all the things that happened eight nine ten years ago but at the same time it was hard to project 10 years ago where we'd be today and so uh one of the things that we were going through at the beginning of that decade was uh, a farm economy boom. We had strong income, strong prices. They got stronger as we went through the first part of the decade. Um, but we had a, a the global factory um, expanded during that time frame. And by the global factory, I mean we harvested more acres globally in the 2010 decade than we did in any decade previously. And so we expanded acres. South America brought on acres. The former Soviet Union, even the U.S through the Conservation Reserve Program and fewer hay acres and fewer pasture acres brought acres into production. So when you have strong profitability in the row crops, we plant and harvest more acres around the globe. And that led to an oversupply. And that led to um, sort of this scenario where we eventually caught up with demand. And then we had really good yields. And that really pushed the supply situation uh, over, to the, over the top. And we had, now we're sort of sorting through how do we deal with a lot of acres in production that weren't here 10 years ago? And the second piece is how are we going to sort through these demand uncertainties, whether it be trade with China or trade with uh, Canada and Mexico, and also um, some of these uh, demand shocks from alternative meats to the alternative uh, fuel and energy. Um, and so all these things we got to sort through. And I just want to, you know, so the next decade will have its own challenge. We're going to spend the first part of the decade for sure um, waiting for a farm economy recovery, looking for income increase, looking for things to improve on the balance sheet and income statements for farmers. But it's also helpful to keep in mind that you know the next decade has a lot of things, uh, potentially a lot of opportunities here that we just 
can't foresee uh, as we look uh, way off in the future. My business partner, Brent Goy, likes to say, um, you know, from zero to 10 years out, uh, we can have some confidence as to where things are going to go. But anything out beyond 10 years, all the bets are off. And so uh, we have some idea what the 10, 10 years might have in store, but there's going to be a lot of surprises. And when we start talking about the uh, the global economy and the global markets, I know we've talked so much about China, about Canada, Mexico, and, uh, and so some of the stuff in, in South America. But from where you guys sit, what are some of the emerging markets uh, that, that uh, folks should be paying attention to uh, coming into this new decade? Yeah, so, the, um, you know, China has been the story for the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, and thinking about the next 10 or so years, I think China's going to be an important part of that. that the China story is really going to be shifting more to income. And so how do they continue to consume, you know, higher income foods, high income proteins? There's another country that's just as big as China today, but with more population coming online down the line, that's India. India is going to be uh, important to keep in mind, including all of that Southeast Asia region. But the big trend we got to keep in mind is, you know, the last uh, 40 years of agricultural growth and demand, uh, growth and ag demand has came from populations. In the next 30, 20 or 30 years, we're going to see a strong shift to income growth. And so that's going to be a different paradigm for us to think about uh, instead of, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time focusing on uh, cheap, affordable, reliable food supplies, and the consumer of the next uh, several decades will probably want, you know, a lot of things that are income-driven, and so they really like to have um, a lot of consumers willing to pay for it, but it's going to be a different supply chain that we're going to think about coming forward. Well, that's an interesting point you bring up, and later on in the show, we're going to hear from former U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, who uh, brought up that very point in taking a look at uh, Singapore and, uh, and Southeast Asia and uh, some of the markets that the uh, the dairy industry is chasing after uh, that are going for more of a, a middle class uh, of folks and, and, and people who have the disposable income to be able to pay more for that. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge story. Uh, even here in the U.S., when there's some USDA work that takes a look at this, that uh, the amount of uh, amount that you know some of the citizens in the U.S. will pay on an annual basis for food is you know three and four times as much as others can or do pay for uh, their food. So even in the U.S., we have this dichotomy of, of a, a sector that's looking for. Uh, opportunities to spend more money on the food they consume. Now, I, I mentioned uh, our conversation with uh, uh, former Secretary Vilsack. He, he is out there uh, uh, beating the bushes trying to to sell U.S. dairy to the world. And we had talked about uh, the, the kind of the state of the dairy industry in our last conversation. Uh, now that we've had another six months under our belt, uh, you know, we had a big announcement uh, a couple months ago about a, uh, a bankruptcy by Dean Foods. Um, um, where do things stand in the in the dairy industry, and uh, what, what can we expect in 2020 there? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Of course, it's, um, it all comes down to supply and demand, but it gets mm-hmm. a lot more complicated than that. And, um, so keep your eye on production. Keep your eye on, on, on that side of the equation. Also keep an eye on how does the, the U.S. economy grow. Will there be... Um, opportunities potentially from a trade deal for the U.S. to 
to see uh, growth and, and the things that we can export to China from a phase one deal. I don't know. We still need to sort through that. Um, one of the things I like to keep in mind for the dairy producers out there is they're sort of at the forefront of this consumer um, trend that we talked about earlier. And so while fluid milk consumption is down, consumers are consuming more, you know, total uh, pounds of milk fat today than they have in history, and that's a positive story. But now they're going to different things. And so maybe it's Greek yogurt, or maybe it's uh, uh, not as much cheese and not as much milk. And, and they're really seeing the cottage cheese in Greek yogurt today. And so one of the things to keep in mind with this consumer trend, this income trend, is that we're always seeing adjustments in the supply chain. I think that's going to be another story for the dairy industry is how do they balance some of the traditional areas of demand contracting, like fluid milk, while some of these other areas continue to emerge. And so that's going to be a really tricky management and strategic uh, challenge for the industry and producers as well to navigate. Now, one of the things that you and I haven't really talked about in our previous conversations, but uh, it seems to be in our face at just about every farm show we go to around the country is the uh, uh, subject uh, of hemp production. Uh, how much are you guys keeping an eye on that, and, and where are the opportunities there? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. So far, it's been a very um, sort of uh, local or regional impact. Uh, some questions that we have about the uh, industry is, you know, how big of an industry does it start to become? Do we see a million acres planted over the next decade, or is it five, six, seven million acres planted 10 years from now? Uh, if it starts to become more than a three, four, five million acre crop, uh, it starts to have some pretty big impacts throughout the entire farm economy. Of course, at the individual producer level, it's already having big impacts uh, for producers. I think there's also some uh, policy things that still need to be worked out with respect to some of the uh, uses of the hemp production, from CBD oil. Um, There's some questions around that. So uh, we really are sort of at the beginning part of this. I don't think the beginning is over yet. Uh, We still have to sort through what are the best uses, what are the best areas for producing. Uh, There's still a lot of opportunities, I think, in the hemp space that haven't been completely peeled back yet. And so a lot of questions will remain in that area over the next, I think, decade. Well, as we turn the calendar forward and we, we wipe the slate clean here, if you had to pick three things that are on your radar uh, that really bear watching, uh, that, that are going to be the key ingredients for uh, the direction of the farm economy in 2020, what, what would you say those things are? I think the first one, of course, is the uh, trade war. How does phase one implementation come together and what are the impacts for U.S. agricultural exports to China, but also the whole world. Uh, we got to keep on both of those metrics. Number two, I think, is African swine fever. Um, what is the risk of, uh, let's say, the EU having an outbreak of the disease? What's the risk that the U.S. potentially faces? And so that could be, um, we like to focus a lot about the opportunities of selling uh, meat to areas of the world that have lost production from the disease. But what happens if we were to face uh, uh, the disease as well here in the U.S. And finally, I think uh, all eyes are going to be on commodity prices here in 2020. What sort of commodity markets uh, 
environment do we see? Do we see uh, prices were sort of a little bit higher than we were last year right now? And do we see a big step up or do we see uh, a step backwards or down or do we tread water? So a lot of that's going to come together here in the next six to eight months. We'll definitely keep an eye on it. And David, we'd love to have you back here uh, again here to, to, to check up on things here as we as we move through 2020. Uh, make sure you guys go check him out at uh, Agricultural Economic Insights. That's AEI.ag. Uh, sign up for their, their, their weekly newsletters so you're in the know and you can keep tabs on this stuff. Uh, it, it's very fascinating. And these guys are, are some of the very best in the business. And uh, David, thank you so much uh, for, for taking the time to join us, and we, we wish you all the best in 2020. Thanks so much. Look forward to chatting again here shortly. While at the recent National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention, we had the opportunity to hear from former U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, who now serves as the President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. He talked about his optimism for a big dairy rebound in 2020 and beyond, and about efforts to market U.S. dairy products abroad. Dairy prices uh, for farmers are now at a five-year high. Uh, which I think is reflective of a number of different aspects, uh, one of which is that domestic consumption of dairy products uh, has, for the first time in a long while, um, equaled the production of dairy. For uh, many, many years, we had more production than consumption, uh, and the result is we had to place a greater degree of reliance on exports, which I'm happy to talk about in just a minute. But we're uh, currently seeing consumption of cheese here in the U.S., at an all-time high. Butter uh, consumption is at a 50-year high. And fluid milk finds its way into 94% of American households. It's a $100 billion retail industry, uh, which continues, I think, to provide uh, the most nutritious option uh, in terms of the beverage, uh, more vitamins, more minerals uh, from nature's perfect food. Uh, And I think that uh, we're beginning to see, as well, uh, increases in uh, whole milk consumption, as well as flavored milk uh, consumption. Uh, so I think uh, that's re- this domestic consumption is a reflection of, uh, is now being reflected in the prices that uh, farmers are receiving. Vilsack also talked about a program he instituted upon taking the reins in 2017 to help boost dairy export volume, the value of dairy exports, and the amount of milk solids being exported. Uh, this is the second year of what we refer to at U.S. DEC as the next 5% plan. This was an initiative that I started uh, when I became uh, CEO and president of the U.S. DEC, uh, designed to really deepen our presence in key export markets. Uh, We've invested additional resources from state and regional uh, uh, farm groups uh, through the checkoff and through DMI, uh, the parent organization, to uh, hire more people uh, in these markets. We've hired more business development folks. Uh, We've hired application specialists to determine uh, new and innovative ways uh, to use uh, U.S. dairy in export market opportunities. We've uh, hired additional market and regulatory affairs folks so that we understand the complex uh, set of rules and regulations that you have to know to be able to get product into foreign markets. Uh, In addition, we've also entered into a number of additional partnerships with universities and culinary institutes Uh, around the world. Uh, And the reason for these uh, partnerships is to build the next generation of retail and food manufacturing leaders so that they understand uh, the significance and importance of U.S. dairy, its functionality, its versatility, uh, and its quality. Uh, We've also utilized those universities and culinary institutes to look at new formulations, new product lines, um, and powders and cheese applications. 
and so these partnerships have been in incredibly uh, effective in deepening our presence in key markets. Uh, we have one in Singapore uh, with the, the uh, Food Innovation Resource Center at Singapore Polytech. We have one in China um, at a, uh, a uh, university in Wuxi, uh, which is heavily connected to the food manufacturing industry in China. Uh, and we continue to have uh, good relations with a culinary institute in Japan, uh, creating new opportunities for us in that growing market. In addition, we also have invested resources in additional promotions. We have an amazing promotion with Costco uh, in China. Their facility in Shanghai has over 2 million customers. Uh, I think on the opening of Costco, they all showed up at the same time. It was a, a, a crush of humanity. Uh, very interested in purchasing U.S. cheeses in that store. A similar partnership in Mexico. Interesting opportunity in Japan uh, in November, December of this year. We're affiliated with Chesco, which is a company that has cheese stores as well as uh, it sells into high-end department stores and grocery stores. Uh, they have decided to take uh, eight of our cheeses, of our artisan and specialty cheeses, and promote them as a cheese package, as a gift package uh, during this uh, holiday season. Uh, very interesting uh, opportunity. Very, They're very interested in the sustainability message that we have. Um, our dairy farmers, along with our Canadian friends, are the only dairy farmers in the world that actually reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, according to the FAO. Uh, we are the only dairy producers in the world that have a internationally certified animal welfare standard. Uh, that is very important uh, to uh, customers around the world. Uh, so this is an opportunity for us to continue to grow uh, in the Japanese market. We're doing pop-up stores in the Middle East and North Africa. And we had an interesting uh, opportunity in China recently. Vilsack talked about how the U.S. dairy industry will be able to help the Chinese pork market rebound after being decimated by the African swine fever virus. Uh, as a result of swine, African swine fever, they've lost at least 50% of their hog population. Uh, we have suggested that U.S. dairy and whey permeate uh, can be effective in rebuilding that hog industry more quickly. As a result uh, of our conversations with ja uh, Chinese officials, uh, they, they eliminated the tariff uh, on whey permeate. Uh, we just sold about 7,000 metric tons of product for the first time in quite a while in that market. Um, I reached out to uh, the Secretary or the, the Minister of Agriculture to make sure that they understood the importance of whey uh, permeate. Uh, we're also going to have sim a similar set of seminars uh, in Mexico uh, to make sure that we continue to sell that, that product. Vilsack explained that the council has doubled down on its efforts in Singapore, where there's a real hunger for U.S. dairy products. We're building a center of dairy excellence in Singapore. Uh, this is going to allow us to have permanent staff in Southeast Asia, uh, providing a deeper insight into this incredibly growing market. Uh, lots of middle-class consumers, very young populations in places like uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Uh, it will also allow us the opportunity to, on a daily basis to uh, display the, uh, the, the amazing story of U.S. dairy. Uh, and it will give us a chance to, uh, as well, invite our members at U.S. DEC to be able to display product. We have a test kitchen that will be built into this facility as well as a series of sensory panels. So we'll be able to provide a full range of opportunities for our members in this market. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to tell this U.S. dairy story, which I think we need to do more of. 
around the world because it's a compelling story. And while there have been many opportunities to expand dairy's reach globally, those opportunities have not come without some challenges. However, Vilsack said the alliances the council has built have helped the industry clear some of those hurdles. Uh, we've used resources from the next 5% plan to build alliances, and that has made a, a difference in terms of our ability to effectively promote U.S. dairy and U.S. dairy's interests and to push back on our friends at the EU who sometimes approach these international organizations with a specific EU-focused agenda. We recently had success in a front-of-package labeling issue uh, involving uh, sugar drinks, making sure that flavored milk wasn't included in that, uh, in that discussion. Uh, and we also had a, a very big success in the Codex, uh, where we pushed back on the notion of being advanced by the EU that something other than science should be utilized in developing standards under Codex. And of course, we've been very aggressive on the trade policy front. The results of this, all of this activity, uh, since the end of 2016, we've had anywhere from 150,000 to 300,000 metric ton increase in volume. Uh, and as of September of this year, compared to September of 2016, we are $970 million ahead in terms of value at a similar time. So we're selling more, and we're selling more valuable product. Uh, and the percentage of our milk solids that's going into the export market is also increased. So the three goals we had when we launched this plan, uh, one, uh, increase in volume, check. Two, increase in value, check. Three, increase in the percentage of our milk solids going into the export market, check. Vilsack then discussed why he believes there's cause for optimism in the U.S. dairy industry for 2020 and beyond. It should be noted that his remarks were made before the U.S. House of Representatives voted to approve USMCA, the trade agreement between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Let me start with what I expect will occur within the next 30 days, which is the approval by the Japanese diet of the mini-agreement that was negotiated by the administration. The good news is uh, that we have an agreement. It's going to allow us to avoid what we have been seeing in this market, which was a, uh, a challenge for us in the powder market in, Japanese, in, in Japan. Uh, our friends in the EU and our friends in New Zealand, who are competitors, had the benefit of free trade agreements that basically eliminated tariffs. When we pulled out of TPP, we lost that advantage. Uh, and they've taken advantage uh, of that tariff differential and have been selling more product in this market. This Japanese agreement will allow us to get uh, at the same level as they are, so we will be much more competitive on powder. Our cheese sales uh, in Japan were continuing to go up. Uh, this agreement will guarantee uh, that we won't have a tariff differential with our friends in the EU. Uh, and, of course, we will make sure that we tell uh, our friends in Japan and around the world that we had 131 medals at the most recent cheese uh, awards, and that we shocked the French and everybody else by having uh, the best cheese in the world. Rogue Creamery from Oregon uh, with their blue uh, essentially became known as the best cheese. And uh, if you haven't tried that, by the way, it is really good. Uh, but there are 131 medals, um, which uh, seven super gold, 17 gold, 40 silver and, and 67 bronze medals. That's the highest number of medals we've ever received in international competition. And the word's getting out uh, that U.S. is producing some really high-quality cheeses. Uh, Indonesia, a new opportunity for us, uh, one that you wouldn't necessarily think of. But it turns out that the, EU, uh, that the Indonesians were buying a lot of products, a lot of dairy product from the EU. Uh, the EU has raised concerns about palm oil production in Indonesia uh, and the impact it's having on the climate. Uh, so the Indonesians have decided that in response to the uh, 
to the uh, negative comments uh, by their European friends about palm oil that they're going to start looking at buying uh, dairy products from the U.S. Uh, Under Secretary McKinney led a delegation of a uh, number of representatives of the dairy industry to Indonesia uh, on very quick notice, and we appreciate the Undersecretary's work here. Matt McKnight from our, our shop, the CO, went, uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of increased activity in Indonesia. I've talked about China and whey permeate. Uh, the EU intervention stocks that had really been depressing powder uh, prices for a considerable period of time have finally worked their way through the system, uh, so we should see uh, some uptick there. Uh, I believe that USMCA is going to get ratified, uh, uh, and that, of course, will open up opportunities in Canada, and it will also result in elimination of Class 7, uh, which, of course, will uh, assist us as well in, in uh, maintaining a, a decent price for powder. I mentioned the Center of Dairy Excellence, and again, we have a great story to tell, uh, one where we can talk about the nutritional and versatility, uh, uh, nutritional value and versatility of U.S. dairy, uh, the amazing environmental story that we have in terms of our producers and greenhouse gas reductions, best in the world, uh, animal care with internationally certified standard, um, and, and incredible quality, and our industry continues to innovate. So I'm optimistic about the future. Uh, I'm looking forward to 2020 uh, and, and the opening of our uh, the Center of Dairy Excellence and continuing to sell uh, more U.S. dairy around the world. We'll bring you more from Tom Vilsack on an upcoming episode. But now we want to take you to the legendary Ernest Tub Record Shop in Nashville for the music of Cagney Frizzell. Episode one of the show featured Way Jennings, the grandson of Waylon Jennings. And the one-year anniversary show features Cagney, who shares a manager and often the same bill with Way. I can't wait for you to hear some of his great traditional country music. Back on Fast Line Fast Track from the Ernest Tub Record Shop, 417 Broadway in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. I'm with Cagney Frizzell. Man, Cagney is the nephew of one of the most legendary country performers in the business, Lefty Frizzell, and also uh, Grammy-nominated David Frizzell. And uh, he's making a name for himself uh, in this town here. He started playing professionally at the age of 12 with his dad, Alan. And, uh, boy, just some great country music. He shares our love for for, uh, bringing country music back to the country, traditional, true rocking country. Man, Cagney, welcome into the program. Hey, how's it going, man? Sure good to be here. Oh, man, I, I love it, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us here. We've got a pretty good crowd of people around oh, us. No, man, look at this. It, what, I thought it was Friday or Saturday, <clears throat> but I would probably be in a bus somewhere or a van going down the road. You know, I, I was running down Broadway earlier today, and it was interesting. Uh, uh, you know, if you would look five or ten years ago, there'd be tumbleweeds blowing down the, the street right, man. on a they Tuesday. Really, now they, you don't know what day of the week it is I, down I'm here. I'm telling you what, they're coming in, coming in hot on us, man. We can't even keep up. I bet I think I parked in Kentucky and walked down here. I don't know. It's not getting any easier, man. I got my good buddy uh, Adam Durant sitting in with me today. Yeah, Adam, man. Welcome into the program, hey, buddy. thank you so much and for having uh, me, man. He's going to babysit me all day. <laughs> so he's going to – we're doing this, and we got a little show later. We got a show tomorrow, and – we're, I guess, just come on, moving on, move in with me, brother. Well, I feel that we feel that we already need a podcast, so this is perfect for us. Yeah, this is this is perfect. We have a little show on Tuesdays that we do, and um, it's you know talking and playing and everything like that. We just bounce off each other, and it's so much fun uh-huh. that he was like, "Man, we need to start a podcast." I'm like, hey, is, man, we I don't do even that. know how it turned into that either. I, I was know. like, "If you just show up with the equipment, I'll just do my thing, and then you do your thing, and that's that." Yeah, man. Well, it's. <laughs> 
it's kind of like lawyers, man. The world needs one more <laughs> podcast right now. You That's know? right, man. Man, it's sure good to see you, though. Oh, it's good to see you, man. I, we've been trying to get this one together for quite some I time. I know, now. man. Hey, good things are worth waiting yes, for. Yes, sir. Yeah, probably the better part of the year. Uh, uh, actually, the first show that we did uh, was one of your buddies, Wade Jennings. Oh, man. Yeah, great talent. Uh, Wayland's grandson. We do a lot of shows together and stuff, and um, it's a blast being out on the road with all your good buddies, and, and then you got three bands together, and we just cut up and have a great time, man. It's a, a bunch of talented folks out there coming, you know what I mean, uh-huh. and playing. <clears throat> so another one of those in the mix also, uh, Thomas Gabriel, the oldest grandson of Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah, man. He's got a hot band, too. So it's all talent. And, well, you know, it's fun and games, but we're all in competition out there. To see uh, all my guitar players, all the guitar players are going head-to-head out there. and uh-huh. It's a blast to see that, you know what I mean? And the crowd really loves it and enjoys watching it as well. So, so I'm sure a lot of the people uh, listening to this are, are, are curious. Growing up in a, uh, a musical family like you did, like Way or, uh, or Thomas did, uh, is there anything else, uh, any other career path that you think of besides music, or is that just what you gravitated toward? That's the, that was my only option, I think. Uh-huh. I wasn't good at anything else, uh-huh. except for chasing women. <laughs> Adam knows about that, too. I, I hear about it every Tuesday. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, you know, back when I was younger, I you know went, went on the road pretty young age, and uh, that's all I knew. And <clears throat> I would, in high school or middle school, we would leave two weeks before summer break let out. Mm-hmm. And then I'd get back a week after school started. Mm-hmm. So I'd miss the whole summer break. And But I had a lot of cool stories and stuff like that. And then also growing up as a kid, I could have came home at any point and been like, Mom, Dad, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer. And they'd be like, oh, that, yeah, sure, go for it. Or, or I could come home the next day and be like, hey, check out this guitar lick. And they'd be like, oh, real into it. You know what I mean? Because the whole family did music and uh, that's all they wanted me to do. That's all I wanted to do as well. So, uh-huh. Who were some of your musical influences? Oh, man. Uh, you know, Metallica, Pantera. No, I'm just kidding. You're always uh, listening to Metallica. <laughs> no, of course, Merle Haggard's one of my biggest. You know, I love Waylon Jennings as well, and uh, Uncle Lefty. You can't go wrong with that, man. man. That's the that's the real deal. That's the truth, right yeah, there. Yep, yep. All the old stuff. If it's a uh, PG country, I'm into it. Uh-huh. Pre Garth, man. That yeah. Is. Well, you know, <laughs> I would put Lefty in the in the Trinity with uh, Ernest Tubb and Hank Williams. Man, those are yeah. the those are the three. You know, back in the day. Uh, Lefty and Hank Sr. used to um, flip a coin to see who went on stage first. Wow. They always wanted to go first so they could party first. <laughs> you know what I mean? Out on the road. So they were tearing it up back then. I mean, uh, Uncle Lefty had four songs in the top ten at one time. And uh, in between him was Hank Williams. You know, they were right there together. <clears throat> Man, so uh, what, what's new with the, with your music career? Man, we've got a bunch of original stuff that we're cutting right now. And um, just... It's the old rap race, you know what I mean? Everybody's in it, and uh, we're getting these originals together, going to come out with this album and stuff like that and hit the ground running. So come find us on the road, man. Check out CagneyForZale.com. Yeah. We're coming, man. We're coming. We're going to be everywhere. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, how, how would you describe your sound and some of the influences that bleed into that? It, it's very, you know, there's a lot of Merle influences in there and Lefty, of course, and Waylon influences, but um, it's very traditional country. I mean, if if you walk in and see us <clears throat> at a, a club somewhere or something, you don't know if you walked into the 1970s or you walked into t- 2020 because we're pretty old school country. You know, it's, it's, it's honky tonk as can be. You know what I mean? When you hear our songs, you're thinking of a dim lighted bar room with a cigarette in your hand. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, def- it's a concoction of everybody who digs 
old country music, it seems like. Yeah, and absolutely. Ha- and how did you arrive to hang your hat on that style? Growing up on it, that's all I knew. And um, I had tried, when I was younger, I had tried different styles of music. I tried, you know, <clears throat> maybe some pop stuff or a little rock and roll. I love rock and roll and stuff as well. But when I went back to a Merle song and went into it, or a Lefty song, it was just so natural for me, you know what I mean? Because it's just in the blood. I had no choice. So when I would do a Merle song, I felt right at home. Tell me about the Nashville Cowboys. Yeah, man, that's my boys here. Adam Duran over here on lead guitar, a heck of a picker from Oklahoma. And uh, I got Travis Nickel on drums, local fella, uh, Joshua Petty John out of Georgia. I uh, formed this band about pretty much some some super pickers, you know what I mean? Kind of the best in the area. So, yeah, my, my one of my guitar pl- players lives four and a half hours away, and then my bass player lives a couple hours away in Georgia. But it's worth the drive, you know what I mean? Because when we get together, it's a, it's a hot band and we're pretty tight and i've got some of the best guys around man you know what i mean i like i'd rather pay the extra money or whatever i gotta do to have the best band in the room that's always the truth yeah so i mean just just as an outsider observing it it always seems like people who kind of had the legacy of music in their family seem like they almost have to work a little bit harder than than joe blow coming in from anywhere in the country and, and coming in and breezing in with a publishing deal and then getting into it uh, i mean do you find that to be the case though? it's yeah absolutely uh my dad always said you know the last name will get you in the door but once you get in you better do a heck of a dance once you're in there because they know who you are and and that's the case i mean <clears throat> there's a a lot of expectation you know what i mean and if you ever step outside of that door uh of where you came from people are super judgmental about it as well you know what i mean so damned if you do damned if you don't exactly you don't really have a you don't have a choice but um but it's neat it's it's neat growing up in it uh it's definitely not easy um people are watching you and waiting for you to fall and make a mistake (laughs) you know what i mean but hey we like it all Mm. if they're talking about us we're all right with it (laughs) and i mean i've been watching y'all for a long time too for for anybody and i'm sure people come into the record shop here and they, and they see you and they, they know the family name they think everything is easy street but i've been watching you guys a long time and it's a grind you guys oh yeah are, man we play uh, nothing's cut you know, nothing comes easy oh that's right we've played we've played huge shows i've played shows up to fourteen thousand people and and then we've played some dive bars where we get in a fight on our in the middle of a set change you know what i mean and then we get we're getting carried out by the bouncers we're like hey wait we got to play another set and then they carry us to the stage sit us up there you know what i mean <laughs> we've been in all kinds of stuff. We play a biker bar. We play a nice club where we're wearing suits on stage. Uh, <laughs> Wherever they call, we're going. But you wouldn't have it either any other way, would yeah, you? Yeah, man, it's a good time though. We always have a blast and and give the people what they want. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, uh, as far as new music goes, what, what's on the horizon for you? What, what can people be looking for? Yeah, we've got some uh, some killer songs. Uh, Mr. Sean Camp wrote me a song. <clears throat> um, that's really a good groovy song that it's going to be coming out soon uh sean kemp wrote a, a bunch of big songs you know what i mean for george Strait and garth brooks and stuff like that but um and then i've got some old songs that my dad recorded back in the day oh, cool. that i'm coming back with and i got one song called you left the party early that um we'll do here in a, mi- a minute for you and it's really cool it's actually about when keith whitley died and lefty died and mm-hmm. that whole thing of you left the party early like you left left way before your time you know what i mean uh-huh. so it is kind of a happy honky-tonk song but in reality the meaning is um that they left way too soon you know what i mean so, sure for so sure but we've got i mean it's country it's real country music man it ain't there ain't much uh 
new stuff going on I'll tell you that and then all the players I got on on some of this stuff coming up I've got old old steel guitar players that you gotta walk them to their steel play, <laughs> to play you know what I mean but it's uh, it's killer man it's that old sound you can't yeah, beat it man well, and, uh, I tell you what we'll, we'll support guys like y'all all day long well thank you man that, we appreciate that. that you know you talk about uh, trying to uh, keep that legacy going for those who left the party early you know J- J- Jesse Keith Whitley is another guy that uh, mm-hmm. we've been trying to work out the uh, logistics of getting him in here yeah, I play uh, with we, uh, we're playing a show with him tomorrow night and uh, I love that fella and I hope he keeps doing what he's doing and keeping his dad's name alive hopefully he'll be in the hall of fame here soon i love keith Whitley. Oh, he's yeah. one of my uh favorites and my dad was a great buddy of his you know what i mean and uh uh-huh. when you watch the old news tapes um from when he actually passed away my dad's right there at the funeral in the very front you uh-huh. know what i mean they were great friends and they were a little too wild yeah, and uh, yeah. one of them you know had to had to go about his way, I guess. Man, but uh, you know, we're, that was the whole reason this show was created was to, uh, to create that conduit to take that kind of music directly back to the country, where, where it's slowly uh, kind of receded the past uh, decade or so. But mm-hmm. uh, man, we're we're, it's we're coming gonna, back. We're though. we're going to revive this thing, and uh, guys like you and me and Keith Whitley and Tim Bolo, oh, yeah, and, that's uh, right, and Way and uh, and Thomas Gabriel and all these guys, man. Just uh, we're, we're going to push the pendulum back the other way. Absolutely, we're going to keep it alive, man. And there's a lot of talented folks out there that you don't hear about because um, they're not playing the newer stuff. But you, you'll hear about them soon. It's all coming back around. History repeats itself. Yeah. So the traditional stuff's coming back. Yeah. You mark my words. Man, and I love it. We're going to keep pushing that way. But in the meantime, make sure you go check him out. CagneyFrizzell.com. That's F-R-I-Z-Z-E-L-L.com. Go check him out and uh, you know, look at his tour schedule. Make sure you go uh, uh, download that music and, uh, and, and just support him when you see him in on tour here in your town or when you're here in Nashville, make sure you go check him out. Uh, we're going to go get him mic'd up right now and uh, have him play some of that music for you. And uh, Cagney, man, thank you. Thank you uh, so for, much, for man. It's sure good to see you, brother. Hey, man, thank you so yeah, much for coming absolutely. on, too. Thank uh, you for having me uh, on, man. Uh, yeah. Any other parting words you want to say? We, we just kind of stuck you there in the corner. Man, I'm, I'm just here for the party back here. That's, that's, <laughs> that's you know. right. You might see him. He plays with everybody. Uh, I try to keep him as much as I can but he plays with Timbo and all those cats around town. Anybody that's playing good music, Adam's probably backing them. You know what I mean? There you go. There you go. But, uh, thank you so much for having us on, man. Yeah, man. This, I love you. I love your show, brother. Man, I sure appreciate that. And uh, all the great guitar licks you, you're about to hear, Adam's responsible for those. Uh-huh. And, uh, man, just uh, check it out. So here, here is the music of Cagney Frizzell. I'm Cagney Frizzell. I got one Nashville cowboy with me today, Mr. Adam Duran. These some good old honky-tonk music.
a song written, uh, written about Uncle Lefty and Keith Whitley dying too soon. Uh, you left the party early, way before your time. This next song is a, it's a good old uh, song that Sean Camp wrote for me, actually, and it's going to be on the next record that we do. Show how to love the fun 
made each other smile I gotta find someone A little more my style I sure hate the confusion That I'm about to put you for you there that's another original for you well I, I guess I'll leave you with an old lefty tune um, it's one of my favorites to play I always catch myself playing this song it is a heck of a honky tonk song I tell you what Country boy getting down in the mouth. His body's living north, but his heart's down south. I said I'd be back. Better make some tracks today. One thing on my mind is watermelon time
Daddy's sitting in the sun, kids are fishing, having fun. Old coon dog is a one to run. And I can't reach my little Georgia peach too soon. There's one thing on my mind, it's watermelon time in Georgia. So long, Detroit, so long, friends. If you're ever down to make it, won't you please stop in to meet the little girl that's always been my whole world. There's one thing on my mind, watermelon time in Georgia. Lefty tune for you. My name is Cagney Frizzell, and this is the Nashville Cowboy for today. Thank you so much. And that was the music of Cagney Frizzell. Make sure you go check him out at CagneyFrizzell.com. And now's the time to start making those pre-plant 2020 equipment purchases. Make sure you make your first stop, FastLine.com. Check out the equipment locator and the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. Have you subscribed to the Fast Line Fast Track podcast yet? Head to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio to subscribe today so you won't miss an episode. Also, make sure you like Fast Line Fast Track on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and be sure to share the episode links with your friends. Also, we want to hear from you. If you've got an idea for a show topic, let us know on social media. And don't forget to add our Spotify playlist to your music library to hear music from past, present, and upcoming guests of the show. Up next week, we'll hear from American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall, who will talk about the organization's agenda for 2020 and preview the annual convention, which will be held later this month in Austin, Texas. Until then, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. Yeah.